It's Thursday, May 25th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Two of the most notorious January 6th insurrectionists were sentenced in the last two days. Today, Stuart Rhodes, Yale graduate, eye patch wearer, oath keeper, will have to keep his oaths and his counsel within a federal facility for the next 18 years. I think you got to do 80% of your sentence. So maybe at least 16 years sentenced to 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy. Before that, a man by the name of Richard Barnett was sentenced to four and a half years. Barnett was the figure who perched at Nancy Pelosi's desk, put his feet up, and even wrote a note to her saying, Big O, his nickname, was here. He later sought to copyright that note. The court did not look kindly upon this. Richard Barnett told local Arkansas radio that he would not be prosecuted for these crimes successfully. Why? Here was his explanation at the time. I didn't do anything. I didn't breach the doors. I got shoved in. I didn't mean to be in there. In fact, the court did not believe him, did not like the note, did not like the fact that he signed autographed pictures of himself with the feet on the desk. Richard Barnett, big O, going to the Who's Gal. On the show today, Ron DeSantis widely mocked for a glitch-filled rollout, but instead of focusing on the parts where the technology got in the way of DeSantis saying the things that he wanted to say, I want to focus on what DeSantis actually got to say. It is not glitch-free. But first, the Supreme Court is under the magnifying glass of the media at the moment for a number of reasons, which rightly or wrongly has some questioning their ethics. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts knows this and at an address on Tuesday addressed it. And on a final issue of concern inside the court, I want to assure people that I am committed to making certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. And I am confident there are ways to do that that are consistent with our status as an independent branch of government under the Constitution's separation of powers. It probably doesn't help that the Supreme Court has been making regular use of a tool called the shadow docket in conducting court business. That is not a term that evokes above boardsmanship, shall we say. It's a term worth understanding, however. So we've invited on Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas School of Law, who is the author of the book, the shadow docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic. We'll talk about the shadow docket. We'll talk about the overall issue of court legitimacy. And that's up next. When the Supreme Court first convened in 1791, it decided four cases that year. The next three years, three, two, and one. Big bounce back year in 95 with six cases. Do you know in 1802, the Supreme Court handled zero cases? But then as the courts got more robust and as the Supreme Court was asked to intervene more, they did. So during the 1960s, the court was ruling on hundreds of cases. Now, if you look at the docket, the court 
rules on a few dozen cases a year. I think it was 77 cases last year. And that seems inadequate to the task of the federal judiciary, but there is another way that the Supreme Court rules on cases. And that is something called the shadow docket. It makes a decree. Lower courts and us all have to follow the decree. They give you a vote, but they don't tell you why. And they don't tell you how they reach their reasoning. And this isn't just some weird bureaucratic curiosity. This could be seen as quite dangerous. It's quite a development. It is the subject of the new book, The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic. Stephen Vladek is its author. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. Great to be with you. The cover is shadowy. The (laughs) subtitle has the word undermine. There's so much, not just subterfuge, but danger contained within. Make your case. I know that when the phrase first originated, it was not meant to evoke such spookiness, but it has taken on that sheen. Why is it something for us to be afraid of? Well, I think the reason to be afraid of it is not its existence, but how it's been used and, in my view, abused by the justices in the last six or seven years. I mean, you started in in 1791. I think that's right. Like the, The Supreme Court has always had a need to resolve matters procedurally, to, you know, deal with questions on its docket, to hand down orders that may be technical and procedural in their impact. What has changed, Mike, and the reason why we should be alarmed is it's now become almost routine for the court to use these unsigned, unexplained orders in ways that have massive impacts on our lives, Um, whether it's allowing a six-week abortion ban to go into effect in Texas, right, nine months before the court overrules Roe, whether it's blocking the Biden administration's vaccination or testing mandate for COVID for large employers, whether it's, you know, preserving nationwide access to mifepristone um, when a federal judge in Texas was trying to block it. We're going to all have different views about whether these are good decisions or bad decisions. No one can deny that these are massively important decisions, Mike, that the court's not explaining. And, you know, the quintessential definition of judicial power, the, the Supreme Court's own explanation of its authority is its ability to provide principled justifications for its decision making, not because we're going to agree with the principles the justices espouse, but because we're going to agree that they are principles. And here, in contrast, the court is issuing these rulings with massive impacts and with no principles, or at least with no articulated principles, which sure looks a lot more like an exercise of political power than judicial power. Right. That's the articulation of principles is so important. It helps, in fact, it dictates how future laws are drafted. It tells enforcement, which the court doesn't have, how they need to do their job. I mean, basically, all the court can do, yes, it makes their rulings, but what it really can do is establish precedent and precedent precedent isn't a number or a fiat decision. It's an explanation. And and the theory of precedent, you know, I mean, obviously, we've seen the Supreme Court overrule some precedents in recent years. But the theory of precedent is that all things being equal, courts follow them. And that's what separates them from the political branches, um, that there is this abstraction called law, and the law is supposed to bind. And the problem is that when you actually look at the whole body of these unsigned, unexplained orders, Mike, starting in 2017, one of the things that opinions usually do is they insulate the court against charges that they're playing political favorites, right? But if you look at what's happened since 2017, there's this remarkable trend where the court is regularly intervening 
to allow the Trump administration to carry out its immigration policies. It's right, right uh, freezing lower court rulings against those policies. But lo and behold, when the Biden administration comes to office and makes the same arguments about why it should be allowed to carry out its immigration policies, those arguments somehow fail to resonate and the court comes out differently. If there were principled justifications for that seemingly partisan differential in treatment, it would look a lot better than how it actually looks when you look at the whole body of cases. So the shadow docket existed prior to 2017. The phrase was originated by a legal commentator before 2017. But your point is in 2017, it took on this different sheen, which is the shadow docket was, this is kind of a cliche overused word, but a bit weaponized, you know, used in ways that weren't just in non-controversial bureaucratic um, okaying of, of, of lower court rulings that no one would really find issue with. In 2017, it kind of became a partisan tool. But before we even get there, and I do, we're definitely going to get there. Take maybe the most egregious or the case that best exemplifies how the shadow docket works and articulate how that case should have been decided if this new method of the shadow docket were, hadn't taken hold. Right. So, you know, let's think about this Alabama redistricting case from 2022. So after the 2020 census, um, the 44 states that have more than one district in the U.S. House all redraw their district maps based on the new census data. And Alabama redraws their maps. Um, they have seven seats in the House and Alabama redraws their maps so that only one of the seven seats is what's called a majority minority district, um, which is what's required by a federal law known as the Voting Rights Act. Um, the, those maps are challenged immediately uh, on the ground that because Alabama has a population that is 27% black, because that population is geographically concentrated, Alabama had to actually have two majority-minority districts. Mike, I think it's safe to say a second majority-minority district would probably have been a safe Democratic district in Alabama. Um, so two different federal district courts, including one staffed by Trump appointees, blocks the maps. Um, and says, hey, Alabama, you got to try again. These maps violate the Voting Rights Act. Um, Alabama appeals those decisions to the Supreme Court. That's the norm, right? That's yes. that's how this is supposed to happen. Says, hey, Supreme Court, we think this is wrong. And we want and, and insofar as it's right, we want you to change the law. We want you to revisit the 1986 precedent on which these lower court decisions are based. But Mike, Alabama also asked the Supreme Court for emergency relief while that case was pending, basically a stay of the lower court injunctions so that Alabama could use the unlawful maps. And in an unsigned, unexplained order handed down around 5 p.m. on Monday, February 7th, 2022, the court said, sure, go ahead, use your illegal maps um, without telling us why, um, without explaining what was wrong with the lower court rulings that faithfully applied the old precedent. And, you know, this provokes four dissents, including not just the three remaining Democratic appointees, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, but also Chief Justice John Roberts, um, yeah. no, no fan of the Voting Rights Act. And Roberts says, like, listen, I, I might be willing to revisit this 1986 precedent, but this is not the way to do it. Um, right. We're supposed to, that's what the merits docket is for. The shadow dockets for emergencies. This is not an emergency. And, and to drive home, like, I mean, that's sort of emblematic of the decision making, Mike. But the effects because of that ruling, not only was Alabama able to use its unlawful maps, which probably meant that there was an extra Republican seat in the Alabama House delegation, but multiple other states followed suit. And so it is actually possible that Republican control of the House of Representatives in the current Congress can be directly traced to these unsigned, unexplained rulings from the Supreme Court. 
And what, 20, 30 years ago, this wouldn't have happened? There would have been a Stein decision and we would have gotten all the votes of all the justices and the explanations for and against, and the the country could read it and understand. And and, and indeed, I mean, I think the the normal appeal would have been what we saw 20 to 30 years ago. There wouldn't have been this effort to treat every single ruling that goes against a state as a judicial emergency uh, justifying this kind of intervention. So, you know, there were emergencies 20 and 30 years ago, Mike, but one, almost all of them involved capital punishment um, and sort of last minute challenges to executions. And two, maybe once a term, there would be a broader application and it would usually be denied because the justices just didn't think that that kind of emergency intervention was appropriate. Fast forward to the last five or six years where we're seeing it all the time, where upwards of 20 to 25 times a term, we're seeing the justices hand down these kinds of rulings. Are these rulings almost always done, the shadow docket rulings, where there is a time component where there are some exigencies, or at least it can plausibly be argued, because the ones you mentioned are, you know, an election that's coming up or a COVID ban where the background is changing or not even a death penalty case, something where you got to rule on it now. So the problem or, or, or is, the six, yeah, the six-week abortion ban, which was, right. you know, temporary and going to change when their bigger ruling came out. So some of them are, but some of them are not. I mean, the Alabama case, you know, Mike, they ruled on February seventh about the twenty twenty-two midterms, which were in November. <laughs> um, yes. You know, that February to November is a long time in the in the life of the law, um, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, yes. So so this is it, a common. To be fair, not a long time in terms of if 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 you're a candidate, knowing what district you have, to, not if you're going to run, but what even the districts are to run for. That's right, but I guess the, the 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 flip side of that is then you know let the district court decision stand and right. Right, deal with it when it comes. It's not like the, we have I mean, no law or just a question mark. We have the lower court decision, and you're saying in the history of the court that's what would happen. That's right. We can't get and, to it in time. Yeah, and, and and you know, and if if we and the court would say if we can't get to it in time, and it's a real genuine emergency, you know, we'll use this procedure. But Mike, even then, I mean, in the old days, the procedure was very different. In the old days, the typical emergency application would not go to the full court. It would go to the so-called circuit justice, the one justice with geographic responsibility for the relevant part of the country. Um, they would often actually hold oral argument by themselves, what's called an in-chambers argument. They would write an opinion. And that had the benefit of giving the parties their due, um, but also of a, a decision that no one would mistake for a ruling of the full court. And it's really only in the 1980s with the explosion of last minute death penalty cases that the court drifts toward what's become the norm now, which is the full court resolves most divisive emergency applications. The norm is that there's no oral argument. The norm is that there's no opinion. And yet, because it's the full court, there's this increasing tendency for these rulings to be, you know, precedential and treated as such. And that's so that's the problem is that no one's disputing that the Supreme Court gets emergencies and that the Supreme mm-hmm. Court needs a mechanism to resolve emergencies. But if you look at how they've been doing it in the last five or six years, it is so frustratingly um, inconsistent in ways where the, the, in, you know, the, the, the best explanation for a lot of these rulings is not any coherent neutral legal principle, but just whether Republicans are winning or losing. Right. And you do make the compelling case that the problem isn't that it's unprecedented, slapdash, confusing. It's essentially that it's partisan. If you want to guess how the court's going to rule in these unsigned, unexplained, possibly inexplicable decisions, just know if Republicans benefit and you're, all, you're almost always going to be right. 
I mean, it's just it, I, so almost always might be a smidge strong, but it is it is a better predictor when yeah. these disputes are divisive, when 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 it's not just an obvious like clearly frivolous or clearly meritorious case. It is a better predictor right, right. than any- On the ones that matter. And people yes. should know, most Supreme Court cases aren't 5-4, even close decisions. Most of them, the law is so obvious that, right. you know, the Supreme Court, even when they engage in it and do a full decision, it's not surprising to anyone. And that's probably true with the cases that come on the shadow docket. Yep. So if you just look at the cases that might, might plausibly be in dispute, in that case, in those cases, we could say that it's close to almost always wherever the Republicans benefit, they get the shadow docket ruling to their life. And that, and that, I would think, you know, that that's a perception that I think the court can ill afford to perpetuate. Yeah, but also, that, yeah. right? But also, it's a perception that that it might, in the typical sort of merits context, the existence of a lengthy signed opinion with a full throated rationale insulates against. Where the court can say, no, 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 we're not partisans. We just, you know, the five or six of us conservatives in the majority um, espouse a different constitutional methodology than you do. And that's what leads us to this result. That's such a different vibe than, you know, just, oh, you win, you lose, and we're not telling you why. So to steel man the uh, argument here or to, you know, press you as hard as I can, if most of these shadow docket cases came to the full court, the Republicans would still win since the, I should say, the Republican appointed justices have the majority, large majority on the court. And in fact, some of these 5-4 cases probably would be 6-3 cases if they were argued in terms of uh, the way normal cases are normally argued. No? Probably, but there. I think there are two big caveats. The first is we have a couple of examples where that hasn't been true. Um, so there's a case from last term, a, a technical immigration case about an asylum policy from the Trump administration um, known informally as Remain in Mexico, basically the migrant protection protocols. President Biden wanted to rescind that policy. Um, and his attempt to rescind that policy was blocked by a district judge in Texas. And the administration goes to the court and says, please, you know, we want to rescind the policy. Please unfreeze this injunction. And the court says no, um, even though it had granted that request from the Trump administration over and over again. And then Mike, on the merits, at the end of the term, the court ruled for Biden. Um, and the court actually upheld the rescission of the Remain in Mexico policy. So problem number one is it actually turns out that no, sometimes on the merits, the cases don't come out the same way. Um, but problem number two is, you know, emergency interventions are supposed to be, be not just because the party seeking relief is going to win. Um, if, otherwise, every case would be an emergency, uh, yes. right? They're supposed to be because some, you know, irreparable harm is going to befall the party if they have to wait for the ordinary appellate process, if we have to make them, you know, go through the motions before the victory ultimately comes. And, you know, the more that the court just sort of turns irreparable harm onto its head, the more it's basically rewriting the structure of the federal legal system with no input, with no sort of, uh, uh, you know, guidance from Congress, which created that structure. So there's both a sort of factual problem and a legal problem. In terms of uh, partisan outcomes, though, I think there's something going on here strategically, which is, as you articulated, there is a, if the problem is all nine justices can't get to every case, there is a solution. And that solution is that circuit justices, uh, different justices of 
signed to different circuits, handle specific cases. So there might be um, uh, an emergency basis. This is a case that Justice Kagan is going to hear, or this is a case that, and and that ruling will be the ruling. This is a case that Chief Justice Roberts is going to hear. Am am I saying that right so far? That's how, okay. Now here's the, as you know, but the attraction of the shadow docket is that if you have a six to three majority, and I don't want to, I'll acknowledge that, you know, uh, the justices aren't robots and they're not pre-programmed by the um, party of the president that appointed them. But I think we understand what the Republican appointed justices mean. If you have a six, three majority and everything's a majority vote, the majority of six will always win. But if you have a six, three breakdown of the court and individually, evenly distributed, the cases are to all the justices, a third of the time, the Democrats will win. And the Republican justices don't like that. So that's why they do the shadow dog. So, I mean, I, I take the point. All I'll say is that at least in the pre-1980 universe, which where, where this was the norm, right, where this practice was the norm, um, the job of the circuit justice was not to rule the way he wanted to. The job of the circuit justice was to act as a proxy for the You have a court. great example of Thurgood Marshall yep. on a really important case saying, essentially, this is how the court, not me, the court would rule. So he rules in a case where he would be in the dissent if everyone were ruling. And, and, and Mike, and I think there's a fair amount of reasons to believe that. It, so let's let's imagine a world where I get my way and, and mm-hmm. we go back to circuit justices. You know, if, if all of a sudden, like Justice Sotomayor um, starts going wild in emergency applications in the Second Circuit, you know, she can be overruled by the full court and she would be overruled by the full court. And that's how it worked. I mean, the book starts with the story of Marshall versus Douglas in the Cambodia bombing dispute um, in 1973. Spoiler alert, Marshall wins. And, you know, but but that, you know, the, the sort of the notion that like the circuit justices would run amok, I think, is belied by what was true pre-1980. Um, but in any event, I mean, I think the point there is even if you had a circuit justice behaving badly, I will take a circuit justice behaving badly over a full court behaving badly. Yeah. Right. Because because the implications are just totally different. So Justice Alito, in his uh, (laughs) genteel justice way, has been tangling with you a little bit, and his tactics are along the lines of, ooh, shadow docket. I'm I'm perhaps misstating (laughs) or or for dramatic and comedic effect, uh, mischaracterizing exactly what he said. Ooh, shadow docket. Ooh, you should worry about it so much. Whereas your, and you could articulate what your rebuttal is, something like, well, okay, sure, it's a scary term, but guess what? It's a scary term to uh, illustrate a scary development. And you think, and I guess he's rebutting or wants to rebut the idea that legitimacy of the court should ever even be discussed. But you are saying that things like the shadow docket and the way justices are appointed and some other developments do lead to legitimate questions about the legitimacy of the court. And, you know, it's actually maybe helpful to the court or to the republic there it is from your subtitle, to articulate those problems. Like we should talk about legitimacy and I want to ask you about that. But, you know, what else would you say about why this leads to questions about the court's legitimacy? Yeah, I mean, I want to, let me just say one word about the title. I mean, right, so so can we just say, I mean, shadows are not inherently pernicious, um, right? Like if you don't like, you know, uh, the sun casts shadows, that doesn't mean bad things automatically happen in the shadows, right? Are like, you going to talk about the shadows of the penumbra? Are we going back to that <laughs> Supreme Court articulation? No, all I'm doing is I'm pointing out that it's not the shadows that are the problems, what happens in the shadows, um, right. Right? right? But 
But but that aside, Justice Alito really hates the term. Um, yeah. You know, I don't I don't need or expect folks to agree with me on what makes the Supreme Court legitimate. Let's just focus on what the court says makes it legitimate. And the court's historical articulation of its legitimacy when the justices have paused to try to do it has always centered around the, the, the sort of the existence of principled justifications for the court's decision making. Um, that's true in the joint opinion in Casey. Uh, Justice Barrett gave a speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library last April where she really leaned into this view that like, you know, People are going to be pissed off about controversial rulings, but if you read the opinion, you'll have faith that we're acting as judges and not her words, not mine, as partisan hacks, um, right? And so, Mike, I think part of what really falls flat with the Alito response is the dismissiveness of the idea that it's important for the court to explain itself, um, right? Where Because it's not that necessarily the explanations are persuasive or even that they're accessible to the layperson. It's that the explanations are evidence of judicial actors acting judicially um, in ways that we are deprived of on the shadow docket. We don't care in the vast majority of unsigned, unexplained orders that we have no explanation. No one is losing sleep over the non-explanation of why a party got 30 more days to file a brief. Um, but when instead of an order that says you get 30 more days to file a brief, the order says no more abortion in Texas, um, right? Like now we care. And that's that's the shift that I think Justice Alito's response is radically underplay and undercount. Stephen Vladek holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in federal courts at the University of Texas Law School. He is host of the National Security Law Podcast and the author of The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Mike. And for Pesca Plus subscribers, more Vladek than you could even hope for. But man, does Vladek deliver. To subscribe to bonus episodes and to get all these podcasts ad-free, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. The film Alien told us that in space, no one can hear you scream. On Twitter spaces, they just can't hear you at all. So, uh, Governor Santos, uh, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you broke I'm right, here. I know. I think I think you broke the internet. No, they didn't break the internet. They just broke Elon Musk's slice of it, which could not handle things because half a million people were curious to see how the Florida governor would announce his candidacy. He didn't, at least not for 25 minutes, before Twitter investor David Sachs, who you heard there, broke through the technical whispers of what is going on and can they hear us? I was listening via a Twitter Spaces discussion group. They say it was the biggest political one going. They were mostly right-wing types who bemoaned the fact that mainstream media is now going to mock DeSantis. Benny Johnson, you did nail that one prediction. But here in this space, Pesca Spaces, Pesca Plus Spaces for subscribers, I'm not going to nitpick the drama and pageantry of the announcement. Leave that to the wags and wits who could no doubt craft fine commentary over the phrase Twitter blue. Let us discuss instead the case that DeSantis made for himself. What are his accomplishments? DeSantis said he would consider pardoning January 6th insurrectionists. That's great. He said he'd clear house at the CDC. I think all of those agencies need to be cleaned out. And when asked about book banning, DeSantis said this. Yeah, so the whole book ban thing is a hoax. There's not been a single book banned in the state of Florida. You can go buy or, or use whatever book you want. It is not. Well, if you mean, did he illegalize the sale of books 
as contrary to the First Amendment of the Constitution? Quite clearly, he did not do that. If you mean, did the state remove books from public library shelves? Yes, of course they did. Pen America, which taint woke, if you pay attention, has ruled the claim that it was all a hoax Ruled that false. It was not a lie when, to take one example, Martin County Treasure Coast News reported, quote, Pulitzer Prize winner Tony Morrison and best-selling young adult novelist Jody Picoult are among authors whose works were among, two amongs, I'm going to edit the Treasure Coast, more than 80 book titles removed from the school's district middle school and high schools last month. Morrison's bluest eye and beloved had been on high school shelves, but are no more. Nope. It's not a lie. There were books on the shelves, and now there aren't. In DeSantis' own answer, where he called it a hoax, he then went on to brag about his decision, empowered by his administration for school districts, to remove books from high school, middle school, and elementary school shelves. Okay, so it's not a hoax. He just admitted it's not a hoax. If he wants to argue that those books should be banned, fine. He does argue that, but they were once accessible. Now they're not, thanks to political intervention. On the other hand, some overreaction plays into the DeSantis general narrative playing out in Miami, a a somehow huge national story. The youth poet laureate Amanda Gorman's poem was said to be banned. Let's hear from school board member Lucia Baez-Geller describing things in pretty violent terms. This is the result of our governor's political divisive rhetoric, and unfortunately, Our students' education is being weaponized right now. The poet, Gorman, in a tweet says, a school book ban is any action taken against a book that leaves access to a book restricted or diminished. Okay, but just as removing books because they were inappropriate is the definition of a ban, putting books on a different shelf is not the definition of a ban. And that is literally what happened. Quite idiotically, I would say, some parent who made no case whatsoever for Gorman's poems being inappropriate spurred one K-8 through school to take the book off the library shelf dedicated to elementary school students and put the book in the area for middle school students. It was the same library, just a different shelf. It's all nonsense, except that Baez Geller is actually right, taking away the weaponized phraseology, but schools are very much running scared because of the governor's actual bona fide book banning tendencies. As a political matter, by the way, DeSantis bungled the description of what actually happened, and he did not make clear that the library in question was the same library. He made it seem like they moved it from the elementary school library to some other library in a different school, the middle school. No, same library, different shelf. Book banning is awful. I hate it. Ron DeSantis does not believe in free speech or free inquiry, certainly at the college level. But the specifics of that one, yeah, I'm going to say kind of ridiculous, but not ridiculous is this DeSantis claim. In Florida, our crime rate is at a 50-year low. So I went to the official crime stats for the state and found that, yes, according to the 2021 Unified Crime Report, there was a drop-off in crime which reached a 50-year low. But that seemed dubious to me, since I know nationally there was a big murder spike in 2020, which no state avoided, and the situation didn't get much better in 2021. And yet, WABC station WJXX Jacksonville looked at those same stats and gave the whole thing a green check, literally on the screen, big green check. Thanks to the Uniform Crime Report released last year and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's news release, we can verify DeSantis's claim is true. 
However, it should be noted that the 2021 Unified Crime Reports were ignored by many agencies. 43% of the state population was left out of those reports. The statisticians knew this. They tried to do some estimates so that you could compare year to year, but the results of 50-year low are based on aggregation, not on solid, well-reported figures. Uh, I I will say in terms of overall crime, it's possible that crime really is at a 50-year low. Incomplete stats don't mean inaccurate stats. However, I want to be fair to DeSantis. I want to be very fair to the facts. The state is good at counting murders. All states are. They take them seriously. And not just criminal agencies who sometimes don't report quantify murders, but the health department counts homicides. And the past two years, for which we have stats, show that under DeSantis, the state has seen the highest number of homicides in the last 20 years. There were 1,462 homicides in 2021, and the year before that, over 1,500 homicides. 2019 was also worse than every year prior. So it means that you could say maybe it's at a 50-year low, or you could also say that Every year under DeSantis, for which we have statistics, there were more murders than every other year of the 20 years prior. I will say this about DeSantis. He made some truthful claims. Florida is the number one state for black-owned businesses. Yes, the New York Times needed to point out that's because Florida has a lot of people and a lot of black people, third most in fact, but they're business friendly. So there's nothing to assail that claim. And for all the bluster and to my mind, troubling policies, it's not as if everything the man utters is more likely than not to be bullshit, i.e. he's not Donald Trump. Plus, he's also the only Trump opponent whose announcement I paid much attention to. So there's his lane. He's the guy who gets some attention, lies less than Trump, and might have a decent record on crime if you put aside murder, which from a moral and law and order perspective, you definitely should not. If Ron DeSantis gets his message out there, and if he occasionally talks to, I don't know, a broadcast network, a non-Fox cable outlet, he just might win over some voters. Or he could spend his time toiling in the outposts of the Muskverse, hoping his message of Trump plus competence isn't ever so slightly undermined by crafting a disaster out of the very means of communication. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, with the senior producer being Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Uh, Steve, do you have, a, you have a, a comment or question? I think you just need to unmute. If, uh, if Steve can unmute, then we'll go ahead and ask him for a question. If not, um, we'll, we'll keep rolling here. <laughs>